That was tremendous. That, I, I like to say that song is literally a sermon, and it's a hard sermon to follow with another sermon. So praise God. Thank you, Jared. Jared is a mentor of mine, tremendous guy, and I admit I struggle with a tad bit of envy when I hear him sing. It's like lawyer, sings, you know, it's just, he's got it all. But Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, I, uh, I bring greetings from the corner of the parking lot, uh, North Davis Highway, University Drive, Intersect, and there we are in the Corners building, and uh, it is a privilege to, to get to bring greetings from there. There's Crossroads students all, all over the auditorium, they bring their greetings as well. I've got, um, yeah, there they are right there. Noah's the man. Thank you, Noah. Um, hey, I want to give honor to two different people today. Scripture says to give honor to where honors do. Number one is our pastor, our shepherd. Um, he has, number one, been a catalyst for what we see happening at the corners, in crossroads, but also just he shepherded our hearts. He's led us, and even through this hard time, he's been our shepherd. So just put your hands together, honor pastor together. We are blessed to be able to submit to a pastor like him. So thank you, Pastor Trailer. We honor you this morning. Uh, the second group of people I want to honor is, is all of you. Um, and here's why, because uh, all, all the time people come up to me and, hey, how's it going over the corners? And they'll ask questions. And, and, and sometimes they'll hear this question where it's like, hey, could I maybe come check it out sometime? Come look. And I always respond, well, yeah, you bought it, you know? Like, it's the generosity of the people of God who, who makes it possible. So thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I just want to look in as many eyes as possible and say thank you for investing in the next generation. Thank you. Um, I want to honor you for that. Um, you give yourselves a hand if you want to, but choose whether or not. I don't know. I heard th there's, there's a couple different sins in a Baptist church. One is that half-hearted applause. That is just we cast that out in the name of the devil and, and we, we leave. So Revelation 5. Here's what we do. We're going to read the first. Uh, we're going to look at the whole text, but before we pray, we're going to read the first five verses. We'll pray, and uh, I'm going to deliver a message called The Lion, the Lamb, and Our Lives. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Let's pray. Father, we are here as your people gathered. And we just want to hear the word of Christ this morning. So we ask, Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen. I got a question this morning. What is the most important thing about you? Honestly. Now, I know when you hear a question like that in a church setting, the, the gut reaction is, Jesus, you know, like, I, I know that's what it's supposed to be, right? Or God, um, or the Bible. But think about that with not the church answer. What's the most important thing about you? 
Now, a good way to figure this out is what you get fearful about, what maybe you get angry if it's taken away from you, um, or what consumes your thoughts, and allow me to kind of press in and say, it's, a lot of times, it's our bank statements. Um, that's, not a, that's not a Tim one, that's a Jesus one, that whole, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So there's all these different ways, if we were to look at our hearts, that we could start to see what is most important about us. But seriously, consider that question. Based on your life, based on your habits, your patterns, what is most important about you? Is it your pay grade? Is it your political affiliation, a hobby, your standing in the community, your career success, your health, um, your family, a friend group, a, a pleasure, sports? Now, this doesn't have to be good, bad. This is just a moment to honestly answer in the quietness of your heart what is most important about you. It's the most important thing about you. A Chicago area pastor, A.W. Tozer, wrote a masterpiece in the 60s entitled The Knowledge of the Holy. And in it, he has a bit of a provocative statement. He says this, listen to this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I would say, well, that's quite a claim, Pastor Tozer, right? Um, But seriously, consider that. Consider that. What your vision of God is, who you believe him to be, what you think he is like, what you envision of him when you sing songs to him or listen to sermons about him or pray to him. It's the most important thing about us. And and for a simple reason, our vision of God will completely shift how we live. Like if you're convinced that God is kind of an absentee father who occasionally rains down his blessings from the sky to make up for his periods of absence you will not draw near to him in prayer. If you think God is simply some type of tyrant in the sky with a planet-sized hammer to play smash a mole on anybody who would step out of line, you will live in fear, shame, and guilt. If you think that God is maybe more like a leadership coach or a self-help guru um, who, who is just there to cheer you on so you can meet your dreams and your visions, you will live your life as you wish and tack them on at the end of your success. Kind of like a Grammy artist stepping up and saying, look, praise God for the song and it's about his one night stand, right? It just, it, you just tack them on to whatever you already are doing. If you think of God as similar to a politician or a president or, or in that way, you'll try to go along with what he says, kind of fit under the mold, but you'll have no um, relational dynamic in your life. All these different visions of God will shape us, and I could go on and on and on. But I want to simply say this. We have the tendency to mold God in our image, to shape him around our preferences, our own self-made vision. But this is dangerous because a right view of God transforms us, but a wrong view of God deforms us. Your vision of God is the most important thing about you. So my message is really, 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 really simple this morning. I just want us to look at Jesus together. To come again, to look at our Savior, to let our minds, our hearts, our souls, our imaginations be shaped by the vision of Jesus in Revelation 5. And my prayer is simple, that you would see him with clarity so that you can respond with total allegiance and devotion. And I just want to say, wherever you are on your journey with Jesus, whether you've been saved for decades, 
uh, I would want you to see him again afresh. It, it, whether you, you come and you're honest, you've never come to that point where you've bowed down to Christ. I want to show you who the Jesus of the scriptures is so that you can respond in faith and repentance in just a few minutes. For those of you who may be disillusioned with Jesus and the church, you're on the fence, I invite you to come look at him. Him, not us, not the church. I invite you to come look at him this morning. And to do this, we must start with a gut-wrenching question. Who is worthy? Let's look at verse 1 through 4 one more time. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on this throne, it's God, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open it. And I began to weep loudly. Just capture that in your mind's imagination. I began to weep loudly, just sobbing, the Apostle John, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The book of Revelation is an unfolding vision of Jesus Christ. Now, to be fair, there's prophecy in there. There is teaching and doctrine about eschatology. Now, all that word means is the last day, but let's be honest, it just makes the preacher sound slightly smarter to say eschatology. So, eschatology, the study of the last days. What's going to happen at the end? And uh, there's confusing passages in there. There's beasts with horns and wings are all over the place and, and leopards, right? All these things. But if you boil down what Revelation's about, it's in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. It's a vision of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1, 1 says the revelation singular of Jesus Christ. It's about one big vision of who Jesus is and what he's doing in the world. So in chapter 5, the apostle John is in the throne room of God, and he invites us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to see what he sees, and this scene captures really all of human history. Right, so it starts off, there's a scroll in the hand of the one who sits in the throne. Now, kind of let theologians duke out exactly what this scroll is. I think it's pretty clear based on the chapter before, the chapter after, this chapter itself, this scroll would be kind of hold um, the redemptive plans of how God will be reconciled to humanity and the earth. How the curse will be undone, how it will be reversed, how mankind and creation will be reconciled to God. But we see bad news there's no one who can open it. In verse 2, an angel cries, who's worthy to open this sealed scroll? There's desperation to this cry. Nothing. Not a word from a president. Not a word from a king. Not a word from a queen. Not a word from a great spiritual teacher. Not a word from a philosopher. Not a word from a pastor. Not a word from a billionaire. Not a word from Gandhi. Buddha was silent. So was Confucius. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't there either. Neither was Tom Cruise. Nothing. That was for you Maverick fans out there. You know who you are. Nothing. And we see what happens in verse 4. John begins to weep. This sense of depth of loss. No one. And this is where our vision with God must begin. There must be a desperation. There must be an acknowledgement of our state. There must be a realization that we are not God. We cannot climb the mountain. We cannot be our own saviors. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when man fell, we've been on a never-ending quest to sit on the throne and grab the scroll, to make ourselves the heroes of our own stories. 
But John comes face to face with the reality that we must too. No one can do it. Friends, let me say this gently but firmly. You are not worthy to sit on the throne. I am not worthy to sit on the throne. We can dress up. We can put pasted on smiles. We can hold things together occasionally if things fall just in place. But at the deep root, the truth is simple. We are sinners. We've turned against God. So necessarily, we can never be the solution to our own problems because we are the originator of our own problems. We are not worthy. When we see a casket, when we hear a siren, when we watch the news, when we come face to face with our own sin, when we lose a friend, when that report comes back from the doctor that you weren't hoping for, when the phone rings and you know what's on the other line and you don't want to answer it, but you have to anyway, when a, when a child walks away from the faith, when we slip into addiction and cannot break out, there's only one solution. There's something deeply and deathly wrong with us and we are powerless to fix it. The gut-wrenching question must start here. And I leaned into this this morning because there must be a holy desperation if we wish to see with depth the glory of our King. No one is worthy. It's cause for tears. But there is gospel. There is good news. There is gospel of Jesus the Christ to those who are unworthy. And here's what I want to do here because one of the elders says, weep no more. And John is about to see the hero, not the fake hero, of the story in this breathtaking vision. And we'll get to two. So I'm about to show you seven. Yes, I know the panic's rising, the anxiety's rising. It's going to be okay. There are going to be seven quick ones, right? But I want to show you seven pictures of Jesus in this text of why you don't need to weep anymore. We're about to think about it, go on a hike. We're going to see some beautiful things. We're going to keep ascending and at the end we're going to look out and see Jesus and his beauty and his worth and respond with our worship and allegiance. So you ready? Thank you, Pastor. <laughs> Hope the rest of the flock is as well. Um, number one, he is the promised one. Look at verse 5. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. First picture of Jesus we see is that he is the promised one. There's all kinds of prophetic imagery here, right? For centuries, Israel had to look forward to its coming king, its coming Messiah. There's a reference to Genesis 49 here. There's a reference to Isaiah. He would come through the lineage of David. This root, this, this lion, this conquering lion would come. And he was the one promised for centuries. He was the lion that would come to make all things right. Now, this is important for one main reason for you this morning. God keeps his promises. Jesus is the flesh and blood example of why we can trust God. He said he would come, and he came. He said he'd come to conquer, and he did. The, the, the lion was not absent to the lion's promise. He came. We know more. The one who promised has shown up and made good on his word. He put skin and bones on. The lion of the tribe of Judah has arrived. I love how C.S. Lewis says it. He says, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. Here's the reminder for your life. 
He can be trusted. He can be trusted. It's hope for every one of us caught in the in-between space where the promises of God are realized and we haven't quite seen it yet. It's, it's hope for those who have lost someone that they hope to see on the other side. It's hope for those who haven't quite experienced the conquering of their own flesh yet and, and one day they'll have a new body. It's hope for those in the in-between between the promise and the fulfillment of it. He is the promised one. He fulfills his word. Number two, he's the suffering one. Verse 6, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is beautiful imagery here. In verse 5, John hears about a lion. In verse 6, he sees a lamb. There's a paradox there. There's a lamb as though he was slain. John's waiting for this promised lion to show up. And when he comes, it's a bloodied lamb. And see, if we're not careful, we'll miss the power of this. I almost become casual at times saying, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. There's a casual nature of this, yet we forget that it's in the suffering of the lamb that sets apart the lion from every other world religion. Only one God came down to be bloodied and bruised and beaten. His name is Jesus. And the fact that God would come and suffer gives us hope as those who live in a world of suffering. Because the way that this king came was not in motorcades. It was not in a lavish kingly garment. It wasn't through the descendancy of the crown. His zenith of power was when he suffered on the cross. And this vision of Jesus is hope for all those who suffer. This vision of Jesus is a reminder that Jesus does not just dwell at birthday celebrations, at graduations. He dwells at funerals and gravesides and and, and nursing homes and hospital rooms. He's the suffering, bloodied lamb who holds himself out to all those who suffer in the chaos and the hurt of a world that we live in. I love Corey Ten Boom. Anybody heard of Corey Ten Boom? For you ladies out there, this was a strong woman. World War II, she's, she's sheltering some Jews from the Nazis, and she ends up getting thrown in prison. And, and it's this whole journey of faith and, and how God would use this um, to his glory and her good. I would encourage you to read it. She's got this beautiful little piece in uh, The Hiding Place. It's her book entitled He Hung Naked. And in it, he tell, she tells the story of um, what would happen is, is tragically and shamefully, her and her sister Betsy would be made to, with all the other women in this concentration camp, be stripped of every shed of clothing and then be made to walk in front of the Nazi guards to be examined, make sure they weren't carrying things. And it was shameful and it was disgusting and it was suffering to the worst level. She says this, How could there be any pleasure in these stick-thin legs and hunger-bloated stomachs? I could not imagine. Surely there's no more wretched sight than the human body, unloved and uncared for. She goes on, she says, I couldn't see the necessity for the complete undressing. When we finally reached the examining room, a doctor looked down each throat, another, a dentist presumably, at our teeth, a third in between each finger, and that was all. And then we were made to troop away down the long, cold corridor and picked up our X-marked dresses at the door. But it was one of these mornings while we're waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page in the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. The paintings, the carved crucifixes showed at least a scrap of cloth. But this, Corey says, I suddenly knew was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, on that Friday morning, 
when he was crucified, there had been no reverence, no more than I saw in the faces of the guards around us now. So Corey turns to her sister and says, Betsy, they took his clothes too. And ahead of me, I heard a little gasp. Oh, Corey. And I never thanked him. The hope for sufferers is that there's a lamb who was not apart from suffering, who, but who stepped into it. He is our sufferer. Any sufferers in the room this morning? Jesus suffers with you. Number three, he's the reigning one. Verses seven and eight. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So Jesus did not lose to suffering. He tasted of suffering, but then he triumphs over it. He didn't lose to death. He goes and he grabs the scroll from the right hand to the Father as the rightful heir to the throne. This is a reminder that Jesus is victorious over death. He's not defeated by it. Rather, he flips it on its head and makes it work for him. And there's imagery in verse 6 that I skipped over because I knew this point was coming. It says in verse 6 that this reigning one was a lamb standing as though it was slain. Slain people don't stand. But this lamb, though bloodied and bruised and bearing the marks of murder and crucifixion, was not on the ground in a posture of defeat. He is standing in power. And I love earlier in the book of Revelations, chapter 118, this is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Jesus says this, he's speaking in Revelation 118, he says, I died, comma, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death in Hades. Now, I don't know if you understand grammar or punctuation, English, all that good stuff that most of us have studied. Uh, you don't usually put comma after death. It's usually a period, or if it's a really evil person, an exclamation point. For every other human, every other leader in human history, everybody else who tried to crawl up on that scroll, uh, on that throne and grab the scroll, death was a definitive period, but for our Jesus, it was a comma. I came here to tell you this morning, brothers and sisters, that kings come and kings go. Empires rise and empires fall. Presidents are elected and presidents finish their term. Celebrities rise to prominence and celebrities fall. Economies rise and economies fall. The grass withers, the flower fades. All one king reigning stands at the center of history. One king ascends to the throne, grabs the seal, puts death to death, and sits at the right hand of the Father. I died calm. We have a reigning king. He is the reigning one. And as I was studying this, I couldn't help but think of the words of the great theologian, Mr. Beaver from Narnia. Because he has a profound truth. This is where we tend to put Jesus in a safe box. We dress him up how we want. We, we, we confine him to our images. But uh, Lucy comes up to Mr. Beaver and, and she's hearing about this lion, Aslan, who's this Christ figure in this, this famous uh, book and then later adapted to TV. It wasn't as good as the book. That's beside the point. And debate that afterwards. But comes up to Mr. Beaver and goes, uh, so this lion you're talking about, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver turns to Lucy and says, safe? Whoever said anything about safe? 
course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's the reigning one. Number four, he's the reconciling one. Verse nine, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed, you bought back is that language there for God, for every tribe and language and people and nation. And I love this because after this suffering but reigning king is shown, these 24 elders start worshiping. And I believe these 24 elders are a picture of all saints, mainly because of chapter 4, verse 4. Um, if you want to do your homework, look at the way that they're clothed, look at what they're singing about, right? It, it, to me, that's what I think it is. But regardless, it's this all-out praise to this promised, suffering, but reigning lion, lamb, Jesus. And they start to sing about reconciliation. They start to talk about this whole idea of being bought back from the slave market of sin, about being bought back from the power of Satan, about being reunited to relationship to the Father, But I want you to see two different types of reconciliation in this passage. There's vertical reconciliation to God, but then there's horizontal reconciliation between mankind. Here's what I mean. First, vertical. It says, by your blood you ransom people for God. Jesus is the great reconciler between God and man. And this is important because the entire goal of Jesus is to get you back to the Father. See, forgiveness, deliverance from the penalty of sin, being saved from hell, these things are marvelous, but they're all getting things out of the way so that you can get back to God. That's what reconciliation means. Jesus gets you back to God. Jesus didn't just buy your salvation. He bought your entrance into the Father's house. Reconciliation. Number two, though, horizontal reconciliation. Look at this beautiful Language in verse 8 says, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus reconciles us to God, but then he starts bringing us back into relationship to others through his blood. This is beautiful. This is a picture of people from every tribe, ethnicity group, language, nation, all gathered around the flaming center of Christ. See, the beauty of this is that Jesus died to construct a new family. Jesus didn't die so that you could attend church. He died so that you could belong to a family. So the beauty is not that these people are gathered together as people who would ordinarily hang out based on age, life stage, hobbies, or or nation, or political affiliation, or ethnicity, or background, or personality type. No, 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 the goal here is not that a bunch of people who are alike come together to celebrate Jesus. It's, it's that a bunch of people who have nothing to do with each other come together around Jesus. This is what reconciliation between God and man is. That's why we're a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multi-financial, bracket, all, you name it, family together. Jesus is constructing a new family. He reconciles us, um, God to man, but then man to man. I brought my running shoes today. Now, I want you to see in the bottom, just for bragging purposes, um, they're dirty. Do you know what that means? Your boy's actually been running. So that's just a little brag right there, um, but I won't show you my times. But anyways, I want to tell you the story of how I got these shoes. Um, because it ties into something we've all walked through together. Many of us lost a, a dear friend almost two weeks ago now. Beth Harris. 
And I had the privilege to get to know Miss Beth and her husband, Jim, not necessarily just through being pastor's assistant or um, as someone who did women's ministry. I got to know her as a college student coming up through the Crossroads ministry, and they were just the legends who were there, taking care of kids, serving them, opening their home. And I just got to have this wonderful relationship that I would not trade for the world with my dear sister and her husband. And if you look at pictures of my, my ordination, my wedding, my wife's baby shower, she was always there. Always there. Jim was there as well. And a couple months ago, I had the opportunity to run the double bridge run. It was 15 kilometers. I ran with Jim. I was going to beat him, dropped the phone. There was some rigging that happened. I won't get into that. He ended up beating me. But... Um, Beside the point, has nothing to do with the sermon. Um, but it's interesting because it's like, wow, 15 kilometers, you must be bragging. No, if you saw me at church the next day, I was limping around. I was asking for anointing oil on my foot. You know, I was just doing whatever. I'm like, please, someone heal this foot. And uh, it's funny because myself, Miss Beth, and Jim had gone to Waffle House kind of after to celebrate my first big run. And, uh, and it was awesome because as I'm at Waffle House, the, the waitress just mistook me to be their son and we all kind of smiled and laughed because I was like who wouldn't want to be the son of Jim and Beth right so uh, it was just this this fun moment and then later on Beth came up to me she says hey Jim and I really feel led to to buy you your first pair of running shoes and about a week or two later they take me to running wild and I started to get fitted I get these beautiful shoes and uh, again, the lady working there mistook, you know, Beth and Jim to be my parents. And again, we just smiled and we're like, look, you know, like, this is the spiritual bond. In many ways, she really was a spiritual mother to me. And Jim, spiritual father. But the question is simply this, because Beth was family. She was my sister. She was my friend. Many ways, she was a mentor. But how does an older lady and a younger man become friends like that? Is it because we had all the same friend groups, we had the same hobbies? No, I hold these sneakers as a reminder that Jesus constructs a new family. It's Jesus who can unite generations and people and friends. Jesus did not die, right, to buy your church attendance. He died to introduce you to belonging to a new family. Jesus is the great reconciler between man and God, but, the, but between God, uh, man and each other. Number five, he's the restoring one. Verse 10, they continue the song. You've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is beautiful. What this is doing, if you want to write down Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, this is a reference back to the dominion mandate. Basically, this was the original order given by God to man to reign over, subdue, and have dominion over the earth. It was beautiful. It was we were God's partner to, to cultivate and to, to reign over the earth that he's given us. We created to reign, to walk in the garden of the cool of the day, enjoying relationship and surveying what God has given us to have responsibility as heirs of the king. But then sin happened. Whenever I think about the Dominion Mandate, I always think about my friend John Davey because he works with trees. And there's many times he's told me, like, look, when a hurricane happens, you ain't really having much dominion over those trees anymore, right? Sin comes in and it breaks up this dominion, this beautiful way that we're created to be rulers over the earth. But the picture of Jesus in verse 10 is as the one who brings us back to the garden, 
brothers and sisters, I came with good news. I came with gospel of Jesus. It's that. He didn't just die to rescue you. He died so that you could reign with him over the earth. We will reign on the earth. You are a kingdom of priests. You are heirs to the promise of the king. You are sons and daughters of the king. You are not saved to sit on the sidelines. You are saved to rule and to reign with Christ in the coming kingdom. He's the restorer. Number six, he's the worthy one. He's the worthy one. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. So he is the worthy one. If you look at verse 12, there's a sevenfold blessing here ascribed to the lamb who is slain. And what is it trying to say? It's trying to say one simple thing. Seven's the, nu- the number of perfection and completion. He is as worthy. He is as perfect. He is as beautiful. He is as glorious as possible. He is the climactic point of perfection and and what is worth our praise. He is worthy of power. If you've got power, it goes to Jesus. He's worthy of wealth. If you've got some money, it belongs at Jesus' feet. He's worthy of wisdom. If you're a little bit smart, you bring it to Jesus. He's worthy of might. If you've got some strength, it was made for Jesus. He's worthy of honor and glory and blessing. Colossians says that it's by him that all things were created and for him all things were created. Any bit of wisdom, intellect, giftedness, strength, or etc. is for the glory of Jesus. He's worthy. He's worthy. Verse, uh, number seven, he is the worshipped one. Verse 13 has this beautiful imagery. Um, in, in verse number two, it said, No one above the earth, on the earth, or under the earth was worthy. And now in verse 13, it says, All those above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth start proclaiming the worth of the beauty of Jesus. He's the worshipped one. Look at verse 14. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. But friends, I came here simply to say, when you see the greatness, when you climb and see the beauty of Jesus, there's only one natural response, worship. There's only one natural response. It's to bow before the one who is worthy, the one who broke the seals, the one who climbed the mountain for us, the one who came down in our place to be slain, the one who is your friend, the one who is the friend of sinners, the one who is the bread of life, the one who is the good shepherd that brings the sheep to the fold, the one who is the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who will conquer that old liar Satan and his sidekick death with them, the one who is, will lead to the Father's house for an everlasting feast that won't end at the marriage supper of the Lamb, all those who have come to faith in him. He's the one who sat with prostitutes. He's the one who knelt with sinners. He's the one who forgave tax collectors. He's the one who stood up against those who would rain down injustice on the poor. He was the meek and gentle one in heart. He's the one who said to all, come to me. He's the one who gathers people of every background and nation and tribe and tongue. He is the only one worthy of worship. And when we see him as such, the response is to fall down at his feet. Dr. John Piper says it this way, the human heart was made to stand in awe of ultimate excellence. You were made to admire Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here's the big idea to take home. Jesus stands at the center of history and necessarily then he must 
stand at the center of our life? I want to turn that question to myself and then project it onto you. Who is at the center? Who's at the center? The battle's for the center. The battle is not for uh, the boundaries. It's not for the peripheral. It's not kind of to get him into the scene. The goal is who's at the center? Who's at the middle? Jesus is not meant to be at the periphery of our life. He's meant to be at the center of our life. I just have to ask us all of Baptist church, brothers and sisters, friends, family, if we, we will become distracted if we stare at the world. We, be, we will become divided if we stare at each other. We will be deeply satisfied if we would stare at Christ. It's about the center. Put up a painting as we wind down. Not because I'm a great student of art, but because this is a really cool story. So anybody know who made this statue? Any art scholars? Just shout it out. Wow, Michelangelo. Man, y'all are so much smarter than me. Um, I would have been like Picasso. I'm like... And then all the art majors, the head in their hand, like, it's like, I, I watch football, I'm sorry. Um, this is known as the Pieta, and, and, and it translated to English from Italian, this is the Pity, made in 1498 to 1499, and Michelangelo, because of this, was said to have created what he considered, and many considered, artistic perfection. And he wasn't even 30 years old yet. This is a common scene that would be painted in the medieval days, um, Basically, after the crucifixion, Christ is laid out on Mary's lap, and many artists would make it out of wood, maybe this large or whatever, just a small miniature piece. But Michelangelo had achieved what was considered artistic perfection because he carved it out of a large marble slab. And this statue is made to put in St. Peter's Basilica in Italy, and it's actually still there if you were to go. However... According to history, it's the only piece that he ever signed his name on. The story goes, he was one day admiring his work, staring up at its beauty, and he heard an onlooker, an admiring onlooker, begin to ascribe and say, I wonder who made this, and he started to ascribe this work to another prominent artist, architect at the time. This did not sit well with Michelangelo, as it wouldn't with me either. Determined to get the credit for what he thought was rightfully his, he came back in and carved determinedly his name on the statue. It's actually on the sash of Mary. You can't see it from here. And he basically translated English, Michelangelo of Florentine made this. But then he became to be overcome by grief and conviction. As the story goes, Michelangelo thought there was something sacred about this picture of Jesus. And he began to think that he had ruined what was sacred by carving his name onto it. And he never again would ascribe or sign his signature on his work. And the lesson's simple. We need to get our names off the sacred. We need to take our names off of our church, off of the glory ascribed to Jesus. We need to remove our names and start ascribing greatness to Jesus. I need to not carve my name on the sacred. We've carved our names, our careers, our families, our scholarships, our retirements on the sacred. Let me say clearly, get your name off the sacred. We've got to get our names off the sacred. He must stand at the center. No one else. 
And hear my heart. It's not to shame you, for I am so guilty of putting myself at the center, of carving my name on the sacred. It's not to guilt trip you. It's not to try to tie you up with ropes of obligation so you would grind your teeth and go forward with duty. It's to ask the question and the invitation this morning. If he's all that we've seen and more, and we don't have him on the center of our lives, the only question to be asked is why on earth not? He is the center. I said at the beginning that our vision of God shapes us. It's the most important thing about us. And there's this dissonance between what we say we believe about Jesus, but then what we live into. But if we believe he's all of these things, there's only one response, and it's to come to him. I love what Re- Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, because the invitation is going to be clear to anybody in here, regardless of your walk with Jesus, regardless of with your journey. Is It's this, Revelation 22, 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, anybody in here thirsty today? Anybody need a drink from Jesus? Anybody need satisfaction to your soul? Come. The one who desires, take the water of life without price. Wherever you are, needing to take that first step in following Jesus, needing to come again to the altar and lay your life down before him, needing to say, you know what, I'm tired of living with my life at the center. I'm going to go look at him and see him and stop staring at the world around me, stop staring at the brothers and sisters around me. I'm going to look at my Jesus for all that he is. Jesus has three words for you. Come to me. Because he's not only our Savior, He's not only our Lord, he's also the most compelling figure in all of history. And his invitation is the same for everyone in this place this morning. Come to me. Amen, Tim. And the Lord says, come. If you go back to the third chapter, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man will open the door, I will come into him. At the end of the revelation, he said, The bride says, Come. If you're thirsty, come. Let whosoever will come. Today, you need to move Jesus to the center of all, invite you to come. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, come. If you've never been a part of this family and this is God's direction in your life to join this church, then come. Maybe you just need to come and fall on your knees this morning. Say, Lord, I come again in this time of moving Jesus to the center of all that I am. We're going to stand all over this place. We're on our feet. John's beginning to sing. The Spirit of God is saying, as the bride says, and the Spirit says, come. Come out of that balcony around, down the sides you come. On this ground floor, come, come, come this day. While we sing, the Spirit moves, you come just now.